Alright, we are continuing our series in 1 John. If you'd open to 1 John 3, what would they call it if they started something of mother or uh, fathers of preschoolers? Fops? Dops? Pops. <laughs> the series is called Walking in the Light. Uh, we're looking at tests or marks of being a Christian. That's what John's doing. What are some of the tests or marks of being a true Christian? Uh, a lot of my books in my, uh, in my office have a stamp in it from the library of, of uh, Michael Hart. It's a mark that the book is, belongs to me. Some of you have on your cars a bumper sticker for Orlando City soccer team, right? Um, and that, you, you're connected to the team. Last week we said that uh, we preached that abiding in Christ is one mark that, that John gives us of being a Christian. And this week we're going to look at our love for others. He says your love for others is a mark in a Christian. All right, let's read 1 John 3, 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he, he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are more desperate for the gospel than we could ever be aware of or acknowledge. We have more need to behold your glory, the glory, the beauty of the gospel whereby we can come into your presence so confidently being such great sinners through the blood of your son Jesus. We have no idea. Therefore we pray that this Time together in your word, you give our hearts attention to it in such a way that we leave so encouraged, desiring to be in your presence, receive your love, and go out and love others well as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.
One of my seminary professors named Brian Chappell wrote a book called, as a book about marriage, Each for the Other. In it, his wife, Kathy, tells a neat story of one time when she was sitting in uh, a waiting room, uh, waiting uh, a mammography, and and, uh, she's waiting for a scan along with a dozen other women, when an elderly gentleman walks into the room. They're already quite self-conscious of uh, sitting in their little cotton robes, worrying about the exam. So they're Everybody came to attention when they heard this uh, elderly man walk up to the nurse at the desk and say, Excuse me. Uh, I'm here for my wife. The nurse says, uh, Yes, sir. Uh, are you here to pick her up? What's her name? Here's what he says. He said, No, she, she's not here today. I'm here to make an appointment for her. You see, my wife have all, has Alzheimer's and And her doctor told us she probably also has breast cancer. All the eyes, of course, in the room, she says, were were now on on him, including Kathy's. And says, the doctor wants her to have a a mammogram. I, I know she'll be very frightened. I want you to show me what will happen to her and what it will be like for her. If I can tell her, and then if I can be with her, maybe she won't be so afraid. Is there any doubt in your mind that this man, this husband, has a healthy relationship with his wife? Why would would we say that is true? Well, what what gives evidence of that? Well, you would probably say that you don't know a lot of men that would walk into a lab like that. That's probably what I would say. His sacrificial love for his wife gives evidence of his healthy relationship. And John has done that here in this book. He's given several evidences of what it means, how you would know that you have a healthy relationship with God. He's gone through things like uh, that you walk in the light, that you, you have a desire to obey God, keep His commandments. Another is that you abide in His Word. And last week we looked at abiding in Christ. Now John comes here and says, look, it's not a... Don't look at your WWJD bracelet. Don't look, um, you know, at, at the back of your car at a fish or a bumper sticker to know if you have a healthy relationship with God. A, a cross necklace or the fact that your your parents were Christians. Or you were born into the church. You made some profession of faith. Don't look at those things, he says. What gives evidence, he says, is your selfless Love for others. Your sacrificial love for others. He mentions this several times. Like in verse 10, he says, "Evidence." this gives evidence you're a child of God. That love, you love your brother. Verse 14, evidence that you've passed from life to death. That you love the brothers. In verse 19, it is by this, your loving of one another, that gives evidence that, that you are of the truth. So, he probably remembers what Jesus said so clearly one time in, in John 13. By this... You will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you have love for one another. The theologian Francis Schaeffer said it like this. Love is the only mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian. Not in just one error or one locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. So we're going to look at two things from this passage together. What does love require of us? What's required to love people well? 
And secondly, what's the result of loving others well? What's required and what's the result? So let's look first at what's required to love others well. Our passage here begins in verse 11 with a very clear command. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, let me say this as a note. John mentions loving one another. He, he also says several times, love the brothers. So it's, it's, it's very... Um, what John is doing, John's zooming in for Christians' love for other Christians. It's very tempting for me when studying and preparing the sermon to, to want to zoom out and, and talk about how we're to love the world and non-Christians. Um, one, because the Bible talks about that, right? Even unto the end that we love our enemies. But two, because it's so relevant right now in our culture. Um, some of the major issues going on. You know, how do you love people who, who are different than us? who disagree with us, who accuse us of not being tolerant of them, who are far from Christ, even unto loving our enemies. But here John focuses in on a special love that Christians should have for other Christians. And, and so I'm going I'm to stay there as well. John then shows us what love requires us uh, of us. He contrasts two people. He contrasts this passage Cain and Christ. Cain and Christ. And so there's two things we learn from there, Cain and Christ, that's required of us. Number one, love requires us to repent at a heart level. Love requires repenting at a heart level. It's interesting in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who murdered his brother. What do you think about that verse? (laughs) She didn't like it. (laughs) Anybody else with it? In some ways, you know, I, I, I mean, I looked at this and I was like, I really wrestle with this verse. Because it's almost like John saying, Christian, don't be like ISIS. You know, the murderers. Right? It's like, okay, John, check. Next. You know, like, why would he state something so obvious like that? Why is John telling Christians not to be like the murderer Cain? Then I remember, though, how Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Where does murder begin? It begins in the heart. Right? You can see that here. Verse 15 points to how murder began with hate in Cain's life. He hated him. Verse 12 says Cain did this. Murder came out of jealousy for him. Abel presented a more righteous sacrifice. And he was jealous of him in his heart. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that behind anger, or behind murder is your anger, which just as much deserves the judgment of God. So I guess then that Cain did not have a sincere love for his brother, Abel. He's walking along and he's like, man, I just love you. And all of a sudden they go up to sacrifice and he's like, you know, and then goes at him. And it just came out of nowhere. No, it's not some slip up. We could assume that already in Cain's heart, he had allowed anger and jealousy to fester over time and to grow steadily for his brother. He had an inward desire to exalt himself over his brother already in his heart. An inward desire to want something more for his life than his brother's. And the sacrifice was just the occasion where that all spilled out. I was at a seminar when Paul Tripp was giving. He's an author and theologian, speaker. Um, he was talking about how someone like King David... Right? The man who's called in the Bible, the man after God's own heart, could, could go as far as taking another man's wife and, and then leading to 
going into um, having that husband murdered. So Paul uh, Tripp pulls out a water bottle, and the water bottle is about half full, and and the lid is off. And so he he does this. He starts shaking it like this. Of course, water goes everywhere, and he asks the question, "Why did water come out of the bottle?" And I'm thinking, like, oh man, Trip, man, like I really enjoy you. You're obviously getting older. You know, Paul Trip is losing it. You know. Um, it came out because you shook it, right? Of course, he's using it as an illustration for something deeper than that. He says, water, why is water, why did water come out of the bottle? He said, because water was in the bottle in the first place. Shaking the bottle only gave opportunity for the water to come out. I've always remembered this and tried to apply that to my life. It means, this is what it means, that the, the occasions that cause our anger and our frustration, our impatience, our feelings of jealousy to spill out on a spouse or a friend or a child. These are insights, little windows into what's going on really in our hearts. We're usually quick to blame others when it comes out of us. But I think Trip is right biblically. The root problem isn't that we're of, of, loving, of not loving them well. It's not because someone else shook us. The root problem is that we have those things in our hearts. I'm going to give you two examples from this week from two of your pastors. I'll start with myself. Wednesday evening I came home um, after struggling a little bit with this passage, trying to understand what it meant and, and uh, preparing to preach. Miriam had invited a family with uh, several children, basically a tribe, over to our house. I invited another a uh, single guy from our life group to come over and we were sitting at dinner and towards the end of dinner we're cleaning up whatever I noticed that Miriam I noticed she was a little agitated at me and after everyone left she communicated that <laughs> that I was I was right on um, I, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't as helpful she said I wasn't as helpful as I needed to be at the table and then later that evening after we um, after we got the kids down she noticed that I was a little shut down she, she noticed I was a little frustrated, and um, she asked me if I was frustrated, and I said, no. Uh, what I really meant was, yes, but I don't really know why, and I really want you to think that you're the problem. <laughs> That's what was in me. Um, the reality, though, in that, at that, what was going on in my heart, the reality was that the pride of my heart hates it when people accuse me of being wrong. Because really, in my heart, I, I think I'm better than that. All she did was, she just shook it out of me. I got permission from Pastor Matt to share an example of something he shared earlier that day. Okay? I need to emphasize, I got Matt's permission to say this. Okay? <laughs> um, Matt had been on vacation and was sharing just what a great time he had with his wife and his children. Uh, he's saying it's just such a playful and joyful time with the kids, and just I felt so free. And he, he said he noticed on the way back to Orlando, just getting noticeably sharper, more easily frustrated over small things with the children. And here's what I love about Matt. One thing, um, he was sharing this to Mike and me as we were meeting about something. Um, 
in order to share of his desire to identify the sin and frustration in, in, in his heart, what it is that is spilling out as he gets back into the stress of work, of being a pastor. And he, wa- he wanted to know what it was. He wanted to see it, to deal with it at a heart level. He wanted to repent of it at a heart level. I'll never forget him saying this comment. I'll probably take it with me. He said, my, my, my kids deserve, my kids want vacation dad. <laughs> my family deserves vacation dad. What gives evidence of being a Christian is not that anger and jealousy never fill our hearts. The difference of a Christian is the ability and desire to hate whatever sin is in your heart that keeps you from loving people well. To identify the bitterness or underlying anger or frustration, the jealousy or whatever, and then to go there and to repent at a heart level, to not blame others, but to strive to turn from it because you want to you want to love those around you well. And so loving others well requires you to repent at a heart level. Number two, love also requires sacrificing for their good. You know, I like this girl in college. Her name was Chelsea. And around that, that time, I had this great idea with a group of my friends that, that, uh, that, that, that we would start this club called the Random Acts of Kindness Club. Okay? So um, where we as really good Christians would go around and love people really well and we'd do really nice things for them without them knowing about it. Uh, take a guess who I started with. So, so we, we took Chelsea some flowers, dropped it off at her door. I wrote a really encouraging note. Um, we left it at her apartment door. She found it. She happened to find out who did it. You know, I uh, wasn't disappointed there. And it, it happened to be the only random act of kindness that club ever did. <laughs> I laugh every time I think of that. And my friends remind me of it. Needless to say, that is not a great picture of sacrificial love. John wants you to have a good picture of sacrificial love. And he says in verse 16, look at Jesus. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. To lay down here means to willingly lay aside something. To, to kneel down as a lowly servant. As he did in John 13. To lay aside, that's how that word's used, his garment. Kneel down and wash his disciples' feet. Who were surely in utter belief. At a rabbi doing that. As one New Testament scholar said, it's like this. He defined love like this. He said, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value in our lives to enrich the life of, of another. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value in our life to enrich the life of another. John says that Jesus laid down his Lay down that which has most value to him. His own life for our good. See, where Cain here, he's a picture of utter selfishness. Taking the life of another in order to exalt his own. Christ is a picture of utter selfless love. Laying down, sacrificing his own life to exalt that of others. John says Jesus' life is a model 
of what love requires of us. He says, quote, and we as followers of Christ ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Like that. Verse 17 and 18 shows laying down your life is not some lofty, grandiose calling. He says it begins simply with seeing a person with need around you and then having an open heart. Having an open heart to meet that need. Some of you um, in life groups went through some of the, the person of Jesus in, in, within the last two years in your life group. And, and I cannot forget this common pattern. He pointed out several, several times in Jesus, Jesus' life, when he would heal, before he would meet somebody's need, remember what he would do? Before he met somebody's need, he would, he would see them. It says Jesus would see them. He saw them. He saw the crowds. He saw the woman who just lost her son. And then he felt compassion for them. He felt something in his heart before meeting their need. While many, including his disciples, were busy with important things to do, Jesus seemed to have eyes that were like magnets, that just, just drawn to hurting people. He's constantly laying aside, laying down his agenda. He's sacrificing the important things he had to do to slow down and love people well. In actuality, that was his agenda in life, right? Loving people were the important things in life. So on the one hand, we have a model we're called to do. We ought to open our eyes to our families. We ought to open our eyes to those in our life groups. Those sitting beside you in the pews right now and see them well and feel what's going on in their lives? How are they hurting? How might you be particularly called to meet their needs? Love requires that we be willing to surrender things that have value to us to meet those needs, like our busyness, like our guarded time at home, to give our full attention to our spouses, our playfulness to our children, to give our need to climb the ladder at work, a reputation or fear of others in order to really stop and listen to, to people and make every effort to enrich their lives by loving them well. Brian Chappell summarizes this in that book. He wrote saying this, The greatest love grows where self is served the least. And man, doesn't this make us happy? <laughs> doesn't that make you Full when you're so free of yourself. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna try. <laughs> when you're so free of yourself, some of your freest moments in life are when you'll be free of yourself to love others well. Your eyes are off yourself. Somebody when I was walking in said, um, "I read the title of your sermon. It's interesting because uh, I, uh, um, I heard some of Joel Olstein's sermon this morning, and and the theme was celebrating yourself." Celebrating the self. And that's what the world wants to tell you. Make much of you and you'll find true joy in life. And Jesus says the opposite. Sacrifice yourself. And you'll find real joy. Because see, on the other hand, Christ is not just the model of what we're called, what we ought to do, but he's also the motivation, right? You know, I, um, I saw a really neat movie. I think it's on Netflix. I watched it on Netflix, so it still might be there. It's called Risen. Some of you might have seen it. It's about the story of a Roman... A centurion under Pilate trying to understand and deal with 
Jesus' body being missing after the tomb. He had seen Jesus die on the cross. He's dead. And now he's gone. And he's trying to figure out how to deal with that um, as a Roman centurion. And when he finally, he's, he's tracking everybody around and he's uh, trying to find the disciples. He finally gets, gathers them in a, he sees them in an upper room and he sees Jesus sitting there. The same person he saw dead. A spear driven into him up on, on the cross. And he, he, it just, he just impacted. He can't move. He's frozen. He tells everyone else, all the other guards to leave. And at that point, he's just intrigued. And he starts to try to start following Jesus and his disciples from a distance. And so he's following them. And he's trying to figure out what is motivating these disciples to, 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 to love others, to follow Jesus, to sacrifice all things. And, and, and um, he, didn't really, he asked Peter one time, he says, what is motivating you to do this? And Peter didn't really answer him. So they keep going or whatever. And several scenes later, they're in a group uh, when in the background, about 100 feet away, a leper starts walking across the stream. Just, just lowly rags. Le- lepers were obviously people kept away. This probably wasn't an uncommon scene at all. And so um, they're at a distance about 100 feet away. And um, the camera stays with them. But you see Jesus kind of walk off. Walk off towards the... Well, at first you see Jesus' eyes meet this person. You know, everybody's talking in a group, and you see Jesus kind of look, look around, fix his eyes on him, and then he just politely excuses himself and starts walking towards him. Of course, everybody, all the disciples kind of stop, and the camera stays with them. You see Jesus walk over to this man, and you just see him put his hand on this leper. People didn't do that. You'd be not only labeled unclean, but fear of getting what they had, becoming an outcast. And then, a few moments later, Jesus starts walking back, and you see a little smile on his face. You see the leper walking off, and the leper kind of turns and looks back towards the group, and he kind of smiles, and you can see that he's been cleansed. And Peter turns back to this Roman centurion, and he says, that's the answer to your question. That's why we follow Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for people like that and for people like us. And doesn't it, it make you want to follow Him? Doesn't it make you want to love others like that? It's not just a model, He's a motivation. Love requires us to repent at a heart level and sacrifice for the good of others. Lastly, what's the result of loving others well? <clears throat> what is the result? Not a long point here. It's only two points. Verse 19 says, By this, meaning the way we've loved others well, we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Reassure our heart before God. Verse 21, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. In other words, this, the result of loving others well is often that we have confidence before God. We have confidence in God's presence. See, I think it works like this. You know, our hearts, picture your heart as like a jury in a courtroom. And there should be moments in your life where when you really, by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, you just feel filled sometimes and enabled by God to repent at a, at a heart label, label, uh, level. To actually go to a spouse or friend and say you're sorry, it's supernatural. But you do it sometimes. You say, man, where did that come from? Um, or maybe you see a willingness to, to sacrifice something good in your life to enrich the life of another. 
I'm going to go ahead and take this. Without the desire to see or know, why did you remember that the jury of her heart, this heinous evidence of his love, realizes that this is a supernatural work of God's Spirit inside of us? Our heart gives affirmation then. It starts to gain confidence and boldness in the presence of God, our judge. It gives affirmation that we must be children of God. God is surely working us. Surely we will have eternal life, right? You'll have those moments. I think John's saying it's interesting to talk about that our loving, our acts of love should give us such confidence sometimes. Confidence is a huge deal, right? Um, you ever notice how some people, and this may be you as well, I mean, this is a lot of us, that you have a lot of confidence when um, you're not in somebody's presence. You know, like online, right? You just, it's, it's like you take on a different self. <laughs> you're so, you're confident uh, before them because they're kind of out there. They don't know you. and um, um, But you lose confidence when you come into their presence. You lose confidence when you come into a group of people you don't really know very well. This is especially true when you've done something wrong. I had a, a, a good friend who's in my discipleship group. Who, he was a policeman in, in Mississippi. Um, he once told me that he could al- almost always tell when somebody came into his presence and he had done, he's doing something wrong. It, because, by the way, this guy couldn't, you know, people wouldn't look him in the eyes. They would demonstrate a, a lack of confidence in the presence of a policeman. This is why in the Old Testament there, there was a lack of confidence in the Old Testament, to be in the presence of God without a mediator. Exodus 19, God descended. His presence was on the mountain. If you went near the mountain, it says you would die. Isaiah, in a vision of being in God's presence, had a feeling that he was becoming dismembered. Uriah, when he touched the ark, which is a symbol of God's presence, he immediately dropped dead. See, God was holy and we are not. You don't come into his presence unholy. The Old Testament teaches us. You don't come confident in God's presence. So it makes sense that the jury of our heart is not always so confident, right? In verse 30, it says, or verse 20, I'm sorry, it says this. God knows our hearts. He, know, he knows everything, it says. It gives a picture of standing in the courtroom and you present your evidence. Look how loving I've been. And God, the judge, pulls out all the evidence. He knows more than we do. He knows it all. See, we pull out and say, see, uh, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. And he starts, he pulls out this, you know, boom on the things. A pile, thousands of times where angerness and bitterness, you allowed it to grow. We say, well, see all these acts of love, thousands of files he pulls out of where your motivation for loving others was self-promotion or self-gain. This is why in verse 20 it says, our hearts are so fickle. Sometimes they give us confidence, but our hearts, whenever our hearts condemn us, it says there in verse 20. The jury of our hearts quickly turn and begin to condemn us. They make accusations. You are not a good Christian, are you? You don't deserve to be loved by God. You don't deserve to have confidence in His presence. 
For those of you whose hearts and consciences live in such a courtroom, that's surely some of us today. Feel overwhelmed by the evidence against you, the presence of God who knows everything this week. Your heart constantly speaks to you as a jury that accuses you. The judge pronouncing you, you hear condemnation, you hear guilty, surely not forgiven, surely not loved. Look, for all of us then, not just those, but for all of us who would admit our hearts are filled with such of these things. Verse 20 says this, listen, God is greater than your heart. Your heart is not the ultimate judge. It's not the greater judge. The one who knows your heart, who has all the evidence, he's the final judge and not your feelings. That's why in verse 23 shows that the foremost mandate of the whole Bible, listen to this, I'm almost done, is not that you go and love others well. Look at verse 23. So important. And this is his commandment. What does God most want of you? Believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus. It works like this. When you believe that your heart is leprous-like, filled with sin, undeserving of being in God's presence, when you believe that God, the eternal Son, more glory than any Roman emperor or king or president, moves towards you with that leprous-like heart, a sparkle in his eye and a smile on his face to lay down his own glory, his life, and sacrifice all for so that our sinful hearts could be poured out onto Him on the cross. And we, when you believe that Jesus was punished there for all of that sin, and He goes before us as our mediator and advocate before God, the ultimate judge, and then that eternal judge then looks down on you knowing all things and says, not guilty. No condemnation for you. The greater judge, it changes you. Much like, much like how the love of that husband sacrificially walking into that room before his wife would change you. What every wife longs to hear, have a husband like loves her well like that. What every person desires in the presence of God to hear from God. He said, if I can tell her, if I can be with her, maybe she won't be so afraid. He went on to say this, Kathy shares, I, I do this because... When we got married, I promised to love her. And I meant it. And so when you really believe that God himself says, I willingly sacrifice what was most valuable to me, lay down my son's life so that I could, because I made a promise to love you. And I meant it. It, it does two things to us. Number one, it gives us confidence to come into the presence of God. Not as a condemned criminal or a stranger who is not known, but as a child confidently coming before a father who knows all and is dearly loved. As Hebrews 10 says we should have confidence to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near then with full assurance of faith, having our consciences sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Confidence before God, the number two, it should give us and motivate us to go and sacrificially love others well. It changes our ought to want. It's not just that we ought to go out and love others well. When you get how God has loved you, you will find in you a motivation 
to want to go love others well, sacrificially. Let's pray. God, you lay before us a calling to love others well. We thank you that you've not just given us a model of what it looks to like to live freely as a human, to be emptied of ourself, and to sacrificially lay down our lives in the small, mundane things of life for others. But you've also given the motivation as Jesus, you have freed us from all condemnation, declaring us not guilty and have loved us perfectly. We praise you for this and ask you to enable us to go out and love others well as you have loved us in Jesus' name. Amen.